Hello out there, and thank you for joining me. My name is Dan Roberts, and today we are going to give a basic psychological principle, the connection between thoughts and feelings. One more thing. The, uh, the topic at hand is one of the things that as a therapist I deal with every time I have a client in front of me. It's one of the core disconnects that cause a lot of people to get stuck in mental illness or suffering without knowing why. And the, um, the true irony is that it's a very simple idea. It's a simple idea, but it is counterintuitive. It is contrary to the way we usually conceptualize and conceive of our own internal world. And the idea is, it's got many different names, but what we're really talking about is the connection between thought and feeling. This elementary connection is so often taken for granted or misunderstood, but there's a basic premise that is always true. And that premise is, you cannot experience an emotion without there being a thought that produces it. This is always, 100% of the time, true. Now, some of you who are listening to this will have real friction with this idea, real tension around the idea that your emotions are caused by a thought. Because if you're like so many of us, you may not know what the thought is that's producing the emotion. But that's the point. And that is so much the point of of much of cognitive behavioral therapy or cognitive processing therapy in the case of trauma. But imagine this. Could you be happy without conceiving of something happy? Can you be angry without deciding at some level, even if the decision is a split-second reaction, can you be angry without deciding that there is a cause to be angry for? Can you be sad without interpreting something as sad? I don't believe that you can. I believe that the thoughts that cause these emotions are sometimes so rapid and so automatic that we just don't notice that they're happening. But they're still there. So this basic concept that all emotions are caused by a thought despite all of its logic, is still wildly radical for many people and directly contradicts the way many people understand their own selves. A lot of times people will believe that situations have absolute or necessary emotion. Like, if you get insulted, you must be angry. If, uh, if someone breaks up with you, you must be heartbroken. If you're late for work, you must be scared. But this belief that situations have necessary or absolute emotions is deeply incorrect. And this misconception lies at the heart of many mental and emotional disorders and distresses. These problems can become chronic. They can become the way a person sees the world and that can wreck them. But that way of seeing the world is potentially faulty. So, Learning to recognize that your thoughts create your emotions, and then to recognize that all of your thoughts can be changed, 
is often a watershed moment in the process of mental empowerment, resilience, and recovery from mental illness. There's a few thought experiments that I will do with patients to, to kind of illustrate this. One of them is I will ask my patients if they are loyal to a particular team, to a sporting team. Um, I'm, a, I'm a football fan, so that's the, the one that is closest to home with me. But I've asked this question about baseball, basketball, cricket. It works for any sport, really. The idea is this. If you have a deep and abiding loyalty from childhood to a certain team, say you're a fan of the Chicago Bears, and you grew up loving the Bears, and even though you know that they're not always officially, actually the best team in football, and you know that some seasons they've been terrible, you still have a strong feeling of loyalty, a strong feeling of affection. Because you have memories connected to good times with that team, or maybe that's the town you grew up in, or maybe that's the town your dad was a fan of, for whatever reason, your loyalty is founded in a set of assumptions that support the idea that the Bears are a great team to follow. And you've probably spent years and years, maybe a, maybe thousands of dollars, doubling down on that loyalty, buying merchandise, buying tickets, staying up late to watch games, canceling other plans, putting skin in the game. Well, anybody who follows football knows that the Bears have a serious rivalry with the Green Bay Packers. Imagine then if you have a child that grows up to play football and they're great, good enough to play in the NFL. And when they get drafted by the NFL, imagine they get drafted by the dreaded, hated Green Bay Packers. What would that cause to happen within you? What rifts, what tension, what, what acrimony would that cause within you? The Green Bay Packers are a good team. They're just the team that you've decided to hate because you have also decided to love the Bears. Imagine, though, your son is drafted to the Green Bay Packers and all of the parents of the team are brought out for family day to introduce the rookies to the organization and introduce their parents. And, and you start to get to know the coaching staff and the support staff, that you see the, the facilities, the training facilities, you meet the team doctors, you have an exposure to the Green Bay Packers that exceeds anything you've ever had with the Bears. How long would it take watching your son put on the green and yellow uniform before your emotion about the Green Bay Packers started to change? Before your assumptions about what Green Bay had to mean to you started to be replaced by new ones? Do you think it's a whole football season before you start to relax? Or do you think you can start to change your assumptions about Green Bay after a day or two of your son being on the team. I don't know that anybody can predict this, but I do know that individuals who have a rapid ability to accept new realities are also what we call emotionally resilient. 
They have a rapid ability to accept a new way of seeing things if their old way of seeing things no longer works for them or is constituting an obstacle to them. Whereas the opposite, people who really have a hard time letting go of of previously held beliefs or expectations, people who would struggle after two or three years to cheer for the Green Bay Packers, even though their son plays on the team, those people with that kind of emotional and psychological rigidity tend to really struggle because they have a hard time letting go of previously held beliefs. But it isn't the team that causes your emotion. It's the belief about the team. If you're a diehard, dyed-in-the-wool Chicago Bears fan, and you tell yourself that you can never cheer for Green Bay, well, then you can't. And that might mean you can't cheer for your son. But if you tell yourself that you are a diehard, dyed-in-the-wool Chicago Bears fan, but you've got a son who plays in the NFL, and that trumps everything, well, then it's easy to start cheering for Green Bay. And maybe you do something clever like, get your son's number and name in a Chicago Bears uniform and you wear that to his games because you're still a Bears fan, but you love your son and you want to cheer for him too. All of this flexibility, this ability to navigate around these rigid concepts is what we mean when we say the word resiliency. And the inability to do that, this rigidity around these concepts is really a I mean, there, there are no, no death knells, no sure signs of, of emotional turmoil, but this one comes pretty close. So let's do another thought experiment. Imagine, well, let me preface this. So obviously this situation is, that I'm talking about, this example is a pretty exotic one. I don't know anybody whose children play in the NFL, but I do know people who make these kinds of cognitive changes all the time. And that's more accurate to say all people make these kinds of cognitive changes all the time in much less dramatic ways. So another example would be, imagine walking down the supermarket and you see an old friend you haven't seen for years come uh, come around a corner and your face brightens up and you get ready to say hi only to swallow your tongue as the person gets closer and you realize that they're a complete stranger. Where did the excitement go? The excitement vanishes entirely and is probably swallowed up by something like embarrassment or maybe chagrin, not because the person has changed, but because your thoughts about that person have changed. You thought they were an old friend, and then you realize that you don't know them at all. The only thing that changes in that situation is your set of awarenesses, right? Or how about the idea of being startled? Somebody pulls a prank on you, right? Jumps out from behind the door, scares you. Your initial reaction might be fear, maybe anger. But once it settles in on you, or once you recognize that it was a prank and it was a funny joke, you might join the laughter seconds later. Because you have turned from assessing in a split second the situation is being threatening and then moving very quickly in your own understanding to see the situation as a joke, which you can then enjoy. 
Think of every surprise birthday party you've ever been a part of or seen. When the surprise is sprung, people are shocked and maybe maybe scared, maybe afraid, maybe angry. But very quickly, that anger, that fear from the initial assessment of threat evaporates and is replaced with maybe happiness, maybe even joy at the newfound situation. So this happens all the time. But each of these instances have have in common that the change key is the understanding, not the situation. It's the belief, not the circumstance, that produces the change in emotion. And so it is all of the time. But often I get questions about emotional experiences that don't seem to make sense, that are a mystery to the person having them. Why? What about times when you feel sad, but you don't know why? What about when you have an anxiety attack, quote, for no reason? Well, if that happens to you, if you find yourself having an emotional experience that you don't understand, I would like to invite you to use that lack of understanding as a cue, as a cue, as an indication that exactly that state of not knowing why you feel a certain way is the invitation that you need to find out what the reason is. If you experience a strong emotion, or maybe it's not even a strong emotion, but it's just a chronic one that you can't shake off, like a like a dull depression or uh, an abiding inability to be satisfied or whatever, you can start with the emotion and work backwards to find the thought or belief that causes it. Now, if, for example, your unexplained emotion is sadness, then you can start at the emotion and work upstream in your mind. Work until you locate the belief or series of beliefs that you hold that are capable of producing that exact flavor of sadness that you're experiencing. Now, this can be unsettling or even frightening, like turning over rocks and finding spiders. But in the end, it's a richly rewarding experience that leads us to deeper understanding of self and eventually makes possible greater self-mastery and recovery from many of the mental illnesses that so easily plague us. So, to use another example, if the emotion is anger, and that anger is out of control, when you've calmed yourself down after an angry outburst, enough to think rationally, do this work. Examine the anger, the specific feel and flavor of it. What is the special or specific nature of the anger? Now trace that anger back upstream to the thoughts that created it and find the specific beliefs or assumptions or predictions that you made or that you have been making or that you always make about the world or yourself in the world that matches up with the anger. And once you have found those thoughts, no matter how strange or juvenile or scary or silly the thoughts actually are, you can start to work on them. But if you never trace your your emotions to their source, you can never get over them because you'll never know where they're coming from. There's a metaphor that I often use in therapy where people will experience a very strong emotion and they learn how to to repress it. They learn how how to stop it from getting out 
but they don't learn how to stop it at its source. So I will I will use this uh, this metaphor of a king hose. Right, if you're out working in the backyard, and all of a sudden the hose starts spraying water all over everything and threatening to ruin your work, or at least make things messy, then you can grab the hose and kink it. And that effectively stops the water from spraying all over the place. But there's a problem with this strategy. You can't let go of the hose. You're trapped with a hose in one hand, trying to do the rest of your work, but now limited by the fact that you have to keep the hose kinked. Otherwise, the water will start spraying all over the place. Or you can go back upstream and find the source of the water, in this case, the faucet, and change the faucet's position. Turn it off. In which case, the pressure in the hose immediately stops. There's no more threat of a mess being made. And you can let go of the hose, let go of the coping mechanism or whatever it is that you have to use to keep your emotions under control. You can put that down and work on your project with both hands if you can turn off the source of the emotion. But I know a lot of people are almost married to the idea that their emotions will never be stable, that they will never feel okay, that they will always be plagued by their trauma, by their grief, by their sense of betrayal. And these things feel, they can feel so powerful. And many people will will hold on to these negative beliefs, almost like they're necessary for identity. Who can you be? Who would you be if you weren't always angry at the person who hurt you? Or if you weren't always scared about the trauma that happened to you. But I'm a trauma therapist. And I see people all the time who have experienced the worst traumas possible come to see even these horrific wartime combat traumas, rapes, molestations, the deaths of loved ones, come to see those things in a new light so that they do not have the same power over them that they once did. And instead of having to be defined by their reaction to the trauma, take a hold of the power to instead define their own reaction to their trauma. And it's a miracle to see. It's one of the things I love the most about my work is seeing someone come into this understanding that their trauma doesn't define them. They define their trauma. Your loss doesn't define you. You define your loss. This is incredibly powerful stuff when we can tap into it. Once we have changed the position of the faucet and turned off the pressure so that it is not producing a lot of emotional mess in our lives, and we can put down the kinked hose, the coping strategies are good to have. It's good to be able to cope with the water coming at you unexpectedly. But if that's all you do, if that's all you ever do, You have to keep the hose kinked and you have to hold on to it every day for the rest of your life. And that is so much more work and energy and effort. So much less efficient than it would be to go to the source and to change the position of the source so that it no longer produces the water pressure down at the end of the hose. So there was a a veteran I recently worked with 
who was having a big problem with anger and depression. When he first came in, he had no no idea why he struggled with either of these things. He had plenty of coping skills. He was really great at kinking the hose. He could put out spot fires that he would cause, but the damage was starting to take a real toll on his life and his overall happiness. He knew what to do when he lost his temper, but he had no functional idea of what to do to keep himself from losing his temper in the first place. He knew what to do when he was feeling down and depressed, but he had no idea how to keep himself from feeling that way. So it seemed like half his time was spent, quote, messing up, and the other half of his time was spent correcting his mess-ups. That's exhausting. And he was exhausted, and his wife and kids were exhausted, and everybody around him was exhausted by this revolving door of violations and then reparations. So as we worked, it became quickly clear that he had almost no sense of his own thinking process. In a sense, he lived on psychological autopilot or on instinct or some other automatic process that he had little awareness of and even less control of. And in that lack of control, his mind was doing whatever seemed easy and natural, even if those easy and natural things were burning down the rest of his life. And it took some real work on his part to pry open the figurative lid of his mind and to start getting familiar with his own thinking. He initially kept wanting to confuse his emotions with his thoughts, and he was absolutely hell-bent on insisting that there was no difference between the two. So, when I would ask him how he was feeling about a certain event, he would invariably reply with something like, I feel like that guy deserves to get his ass beat. To which I would reply, that concept is definitely a thought. What is the emotion being expressed? To which he would, you know, furrow his brow and frown and shrug his shoulders and he'd say that he needs to get his ass beat. This went on for some time, for several sessions, until I started using a, a printout with the eight cardinal emotions printed on it in a circle, like a pie chart. And I started requiring him to identify the emotions expressed by his thoughts. This was as simplistic as a tool can be, yet it provided a true awakening for him. It opened a door that he had never yet opened, and maybe he didn't even realize was there. The door of understanding that all of his emotions have a causal thought, no matter how automatic that thought might seem when he has it. He, he had a slow start, but that's not the way things would stay for him moving forward. He fully grabbed therapy by the reins and started doing great work. Eventually, he was able to discover that he held on to some very, in his own words, silly and childish thoughts and assumptions that were causing him to feel tremendous anger and sadness, even though the thoughts themselves were obviously ridiculous. And one of those thoughts was a belief that he had entertained since childhood. And the thought was, if anyone makes you look weak, you will lose the respect of everyone around you. And this was a rule that he had learned the hard way on the playground in elementary school. When he was a kid, he thought he was pretty tough, thought he was feared and admired, and he believed those two things were the same thing. Then an older boy started to bully him, and my client never stood up to the bully. And in his way of seeing things, the other kids started treating him differently, stopped respecting him or fearing him once they saw him 
being bullied. And this belief and the memory that caused it was seminal for him, a core part of his understanding of the world. And he carried it around like it was the law of God written on his heart. If anyone ever disrespected him in any way, it was a direct threat to his stability as a man, as a person, as a father, as anything that he valued. So naturally, whenever he felt disrespected, he would rage as if someone was in his house lighting the place on fire. He would fight as if he was fighting for his life. Because in a very real way, in his mind, he was. Now, I'm sure you can imagine what his reaction tended to be if he got cut off in traffic. It wasn't pretty. Well, once he recognized that this belief was in his system, still calling these emotional shots, he was able to almost immediately squash it flat. As a mature man, he could call himself out on it and challenge the belief and replace it with a more productive, wiser, more adult one. What he came up with was a wonderful corrective balancing thought. And that thought was, I'm a grown man and I know what I've done with my life. People who don't respect me are people who have no idea who I am. Now, this belief, instead of leaving him feeling scared and threatened and angry, left him feeling proud and confident, and in his own words, quote, almost invincible. Now, this idea, learning to recognize and understand your own thoughts, is what is originally meant by the idea of mindfulness. Unfortunately, the word mindfulness has come to be synonymous with any kind of relaxing meditation where you're focusing on the moment. But mindfulness, while some mindfulness exercises can be relaxing, mindfulness is not about being relaxed. It's about exploring the current moment that exists between your ears, within your mind. It's about turning an exploring eye toward your thoughts and beliefs, about examining them the way a pilot would examine a strange plane before he takes off in it. It's about finding the cognitive basis for your emotional state and then tenaciously examining those cognitions to see if they make sense, to see if they are valid enough to be worth the emotional price you have to pay for carrying them around. We all have thoughts and beliefs that we carry with us that we learn from unreliable sources, maybe from our abusers or from our enemies or from our own selves when we were younger and naive. These beliefs, these hurts that we're holding on to can cause untold suffering, but they are not worth the paper they're printed on most of the time. We can let them go if we can first learn to recognize them and isolate them and change them. If we can see that they are the faucets producing suffering into our lives and we, can in, and we can intentionally turn them off, we can also turn off the suffering they cause. My grandfather was a very wise man and he said something to me one time that I did not understand at all at the time. I was having a conversation with him. I can't even remember what we were talking about, but he was asking me about my own life and how things were. And I, I was talking with him, I think about some friends that I had who weren't very nice to me and who were bullying me. And I said that I think they just don't like me. And my grandpa looked at me and he said, don't believe everything you think. At the time, 
I was way too young to understand what he means. But in the years since, I've really come to understand the depth of that sentiment. I told him that I thought my friends just didn't like me. And what he was trying to get across to me is that their behavior might have a limitless number of motivations. It might have nothing to do with me at all. It might not be that they don't like me. It might have been that they were jealous of me or that they were distracted or that they had some other game to play or that they were just not feeling like playing with me that day. The thought that I had that they just didn't like me was the source of my pain because that was distinctly threatening to me in that moment. And I told myself that my interpretation was God's own truth, that they were treating me the way they did and that it meant that they didn't like me. But my grandpa recognized that my suffering was coming from my thoughts. This wonderful railroad machinist who had, you know, served in World War II, didn't have much by way of formal education, but he had a deep wisdom and a, and a wonderful way of seeing the world. And he perceived this, that I was thinking something that was hurting me. And I didn't have to believe it, at least. I didn't have to believe it. I didn't have to think it. I wish I had uh, stopped him and asked what he meant when he said that. But instead, I, I took the words... Uh, to heart. And I, want to, and I want to say that I probably told myself that grandpa was a weirdo and he said stupid stuff. But I missed the boat. Now I've changed my interpretation of his wisdom and I see the wisdom in it, which is just, just a reflection of how this always goes. I think it's important that we trust in ourselves, that we don't constantly doubt everything that we think or believe that would cause us all to be insane. And I'm just, that's certainly not what I'm advocating, that everybody second-guess everything that they think. What I'm talking about is second-guessing the thoughts that routinely cause you harm, that routinely cause a mess. If you have a thought, or it, maybe you don't know what the thought is, if you have a mess in your life, if you're depressed or anxious, if you can't stop worrying, if you can't stop beating yourself up, over something that happened 25 years ago, whatever the case might be. Those are the thoughts that deserve a second look. Not because they're wrong, but because they're producing all these bad results. And these and this cognitive change process, this mindfulness process, isn't about discovering right or wrong anyway. It's about discovering usefulness and utility and discarding the things that are not doing you any good. So you should trust in yourself, but don't trust yourself. Remember to second guess your own thoughts because they are only as wise as you are and you sometimes lose your car keys while you are holding them in your hand. While it's true, you have moments of real brilliance, but those aren't constant. And success is a poor teacher because it leaves no scars. It's our moments of stupidity and weakness that leave us damaged and teach us to hold on to the beliefs that would claim to protect us from our own stupidity. But we come up with those protections in moments of stupidity. Maybe they're stupid too. It's worth a look at the very least. Sometimes this work can be very difficult to do. Sometimes 
these source thoughts are so hidden, so mixed up in other things, so good at camouflaging themselves that we have a hard time discovering them on our own. And that's when it can be really useful to bring a trusted friend in, a therapist, an advisor, a rabbi or priest, somebody. Somebody who can look at you from the outside, as my grandpa did, and see where you can't, and identify where your thoughts are causing your own distress. As always, I'm a huge advocate of therapy, not just because that's what I do for a living, but because I see it work miracles in everybody's life. If you find yourself suffering from an emotional state that you can't explain, please find someone to help you explain it. Find someone to help you decode it so that you can discover the source of the suffering. All suffering has one. No one is born depressed. No one is born anxious. But we learn the beginning beliefs, the beginning understandings, the beginning interpretations of ourselves and the world at a very young age. And these beliefs, as soon as we can start conceiving of the world, might start putting, pushing us down a path of, of chronic worry or chronic anxiety or chronic depression or chronic anger. But just because you're going down one path doesn't mean you have to stay down that path. Happy people are not born happy. But through luck or skill or a combination of all things, happy people have learned to create happy paths for themselves and they walk down those paths. This isn't magic and it isn't luck and it isn't genetics. It really is, as hard as this is to sell in our modern society, this really is the result of a skill that can be learned, that can be practiced. We need to think of the skill as something like language. You grow up speaking whatever your parents around you speak. That's your default mode. I happen to grow up around English-speaking parents, so I speak English. But when I was 19, I lived in Germany for two years. And my mother tongue no longer served me. It became an obstacle. It became a barrier to my success in the country of Germany. So I forced myself to learn how to speak German. And the first six months were terribly hard. I don't think I ever looked that stupid in my life. I couldn't answer basic questions. I couldn't have told you, I couldn't have told you directions to my house from across the street. But after six months, I started to get the hang of it. After a year, I was fluent because I practiced every day. I used the German phrases for everything every day. After a year, I was fluent. After a year and a half, I was teaching other Americans how to speak German. And Germans started praising me for my accent and for how much I didn't sound like an American. And by the time I left Germany, I was completely at home, not only in their language, but in their culture, in their ways of being, in their thought processes. I understood the world from a German perspective. And that change in perspective has served me in more ways than I can even explain. It serves me all the time. 
It was work to change my American perspective, to change my English perspective, and to force myself to artificially adapt and adopt a German one. But I was able to. And I'm not rare. I'm not unique. People learn new languages all the time, especially when they have no other choice. And if we can learn a complete new language, a complete new vocabulary, a new syntax, a new culture, new idioms, new everything that is involved with a language, we can certainly learn new ways to process the world within ourselves, our own intrapsychic language that we learn to speak at the same time we were learning to speak. It takes time, it takes energy, it takes investment, it takes effort, but it is absolutely doable. And when you do it, when you lean in and discover the thoughts that have been producing your misery, you just might find that it was only thoughts producing your misery. And the wonderful truth is you can always change your thoughts. We do it all the time. All right. Thank you very much for joining me. As always, I'm Dan Roberts. Let's take care of each other.